The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Merrimark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today is Bruce Woody Woodstock, a veteran of the transport industry ranging from an owner-driver to driving tourist coaches. After a number of years as a tour guide on Fraser Island, he's now putting the experience he's learnt on the road as a driver education specialist. And it's a pleasure to have him in the studio today for Over the Bonnet. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Bruce Woodstock, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you very much for having me. You're known everywhere as Woody. How early was it that you got the nickname? Pretty much after my grandmother passed. My grandmother, Dad's mother, she was Woody. So uh, I, I, once she passed and she wasn't she wasn't known as Woody Woodstock then that was pretty much when I started to take it over how so, old were you then uh, she died when I was probably oh, probably about 20 odd years ago um, and I had been called that before but not within the family it was at, more externally within the family Nan was Woody uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and I've never been a big fan of the name Bruce um, there were some um, jokes and songs that came about years ago that put a certain connotation on the name Bruce um, and so I, I basically was never a big fan of it. It's pretty plain it's like Mark it's pretty yeah, plain. Yes yeah and it's a very it's a fairly old name you don't hear the name Bruce much anymore. You've got an extensive uh, background as a truck driver and or a driver in general. Yep. What got you into that industry in the first place? Fairly long story I hope you've got plenty of time. Originally when I was at school I was going to be a pilot my father was a pilot and he'd organised a um, cadetship with Qantas for me. So I was going to go in and become a Qantas pilot. Unfortunately, when we were over in England at one point, we were going through the British Museum and uh, they had a book in a, a cupboard of the Ishihara, which is a colour blindness test. And Dad said, oh, yeah, there's that, there's that Ishihara colour vision test with the numbers in it. And I went, what numbers? Ah. And he's gone, uh-oh. <laughs> he's gone, uh-oh. So it turned out that I was slightly colour blind, which took away any chance of me uh, becoming a Qantas pilot. So I then had to have a rethink and I was in year 12 and I was really into economics. I was doing, I was doing level one economics at school and I thought, all right, I'm going to go to university like all the other guys at school were going to do and become an economist. And fortunately, on the 16th of October in 1968, about two weeks before the HSC, I arrived home one night from a fire brigade meeting to find my mother dead. And Dad was away. Um, with Qantas so basically that just blew me away a bit mm-hmm. and did my HSC and flunked out as you do as you do gee whiz that's... yeah so then I was um, it, so that was two th- two plans I'd had that didn't come about so I then um, I'd been involved with the local rural fire brigade and even at the age of 16 I'd been taught to drive one of the crash box 1940 early second world war blitz buggies they called them and uh, crash gearbox and everything. So I'd, and I really enjoyed driving that thing around the fire trails and that. So I then went out and found myself a job as a truck driver and went from there. And uh, then I progressed across into buses, coaches, back to trucks, made the worst decision of my life, bought, a, bought my own semi-trailer and ran that for some years, nearly sent me broke. Um, and then basically I've just stayed in that industry ever since. I've been in transport all my working life. It must be pretty hard to talk about, but Early days, losing your mother must mm. have been an absolute tragedy. How did you cope with that? I didn't initially. I didn't. I went pretty wild. Um, I actually, I ended up, I was into motorbikes back then, so I ended up running with a pretty rough crowd, um, what they now call outlaw motorcycle gangs, um, a fairly group that a lot of people know I've called the Finks. I rode with the Finks in Sydney. and I was never patched. I was never a member of the Finks, but I used to knock around with them. And back then, they were totally different to what they are now. You know, now they're outlaw motorcycle gangs. Back then, they were more just a, just a rough lot of guys who got, it, you know, got into a bit of trouble, but nothing too major. Never saw drugs or anything like that. So that was, I, you know, that was my early, early time. I pretty much um, reacted to what had happened, um, as people do. 
um, never got into any, na- didn't get into any nasty stuff or anything like that. But you know, I was, we were pretty wild. Must have been interesting though on the streets of Sydney back in those days. Oh, 1968, 69, 70. Yeah, it was. It was a good time. It was a good time. Tell us about some of the good times that you saw. Oh, I was also, as well as being involved in bikes, believe it or not, I was actually into surfing as well. So I did a lot of surfing down around Manly. Uh, before that, it was a really good time because going back a bit to 1964, I actually got to see the Beatles live in Sydney. Wow. I say I saw the Beatles. I didn't hear them. <laughs> I saw them. <laughs> the, the noise was just astronomical. But the 1960s and, the, and the, the early 1970s were a really interesting time in Sydney. There was a lot of stuff going on, um, you know, Back then, they had the, the Bathurst bike races, and I got to ride in a group of 70 bikes from Sydney to Bathurst for the, for the bike races, you know. So 70 Triumphs and Harleys all in a big group, all riding out through to Bathurst to get together. Oh, it was awesome. You can't beat the, the sound and the feel of being in a big group of motorbikes. It's fabulous. What sort of bike were you riding at the time? I had a Triumph. Mm. I had a 1965 ex-Police Triumph Saint, uh, which I, I bought, was still in it complete um, police set up with screen and panniers and all that sort of thing. I took all them off, of course, and to make it a bit more uh, um, acceptable, can I say. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was good times, you know. And things were a lot easier back then. I can still remember we used to go out to a place in French's Forest where there was a little evening cafe, and we'd have a, you know, half a dozen of us there. And this copper used to come in on his bike, uh, which was exactly the same as mine. It was a saint, but he was he was actual working copper, and he used to come and he'd have a cup of coffee with us. And one night I said to him, "So is your bike? You know, the police bikes worked more than the others?" He said, "Oh yeah." I said, "So mine's ex-police. It'd be worked as well, wouldn't it?" He said, "Probably, yeah." He said, "You want to try it out?" I said, "Yeah, I wouldn't mind." <laughs> he said, "So so from French's Forest across to Seaforth, <laughs> we had a drag race. Me and this copper in his uniform on his police bike and all the rest of it." That, so that was you know there was. Things were a lot different. That sort of thing wouldn't happen these days. I've got to ask who won. He did. <laughs> I, I let him win. <laughs> That's the way I put it anyway. I wasn't silly enough to, be, to try and beat him. I just sat behind him the whole way. But it's real twisty through there. It must have been oh, a yeah. great ride. It was. It was great. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you, things were a lot easier back then. You, know, there was, um, you didn't have... Things weren't as, as regimented, if you like, you know. And I know everybody talks about the good old days and you, you hear people and you go, yeah, righto. But to me, having lived through that, I'm really glad that I was born when I was, uh, that uh, I got to experience the 60s and the 70s uh, in particular. And Sydney must have been a really thriving place back in those days. Yes, it was, yeah. Did you get yeah. up the cross much? Yeah, on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'd park our bikes up the, up the cross and uh, on the side of the road, there'd be 20 or 30 bikes all angled in on the side of the road, the, the old 21st Division, who was the, uh, they were the real heavy coppers. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They're the ones you didn't mess around with. Um, but one, one particular night, I had a, a girl that I was going out with at the time, and we were riding through the cross, and I was speeding as usual, probably. Next thing I know, there's a 21st Division car behind me, puts its lights on, so I thought, the heck with this, so I've just bolted down a, an alleyway and they, they couldn't follow me. So we, when we got down the end of the alleyway, I said to the girl who was on the back with me, take off your jumper, stick it in the saddlebag. I took off my jacket. <laughs> none, of, none, of us, none of us wore helmets in those days. And I said, I don't think they got my number, so let's just change our, our appearance a bit. And we wandered back up and parked the bike and sort of sat on the footpath and the 21st Division went past two or three times and they never picked us up. It, it was interesting times. <laughs> the Beatles... Yeah, it must have been an amazing experience. Just the yeah. feeling. Yeah, well, I was only thirteen, so I was I was really lucky. Dad was involved in sailing, and uh, the club that we sailed with, there was a family there. Had a young girl who was the same age as me. We weren't boyfriend girlfriend or anything, but we were friends. And she had her own boat, and I used to crew for her as well as crewing for my dad. And um, she just came, her parents just said, oh, look, you know, we've got tickets for the Beatles. Would you like to go along with Tina? I went, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Wonderful, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Where were you, in the mosh pit? Where, whereabouts were you in the, uh, as in I, the crowd? As I remember, just in the, in the normal stalls, sitting, sitting on seats, um, not, not, not right at the back, not right at the front, sort of halfway, halfway back. When in the um, nosebleeds? 
Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> what could you see from from back there? Oh, you could see that you could see them quite quite well. You just couldn't hear them over the screaming. <laughs> <laughs> Was it a real experience that you you treasure to this day? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's not a lot of people who got to who got to see the Beatles. And the only people who did get to see the Beatles are my age now, pretty much, or, or, or a lot older. You know, I was probably one of the younger ones that was there, so anybody else who was there is probably even older than me. Are there any other concerts in your life that stand out that you've been to? No, not really. I've been to, quite, I've been to a few, but nothing really special. Some I would have liked to go to. I would have loved to have seen ACDC at some point. Um, but uh, we, I think... My wife Diane was very much into um, Simply Red. We saw them, and um, Neil Diamond. We saw him a couple of times. So, How was he in concert? He was one of those people you either loved him or you hated uh, he would, him. Yeah, he was good. He was good. Yeah, yeah. He, he sang, you know, sang all his regular stuff, and we saw him um, a few years apart as well. So you got to see him as he got a bit older. But uh, yeah, he sang all the good stuff from Hot August Night and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, those were the days about 1978. That was um, yeah. that was a huge time for Neil Diamond. Yes, yes. Yeah. All right, now back to the trucks. Mm. You're driving the with the fireys. You're getting yeah. around and you're doing mm. that, and you went, "Hey, this is not bad." You kind of enjoyed it. How did yeah. it sort of get hold of you? I suppose I've always been interested in the mechanical side, so the the, the motorbikes. And, and the cars, which then progressed into trucks. So anything mechanical has always interested me. And I just m managed to get a job with um, uh, some people who were involved with carting out of the Sydney fruit and vegetable markets. And um, we used to go and pick up tomatoes from Warrywood, which is just in the northern, behind the northern beaches of Sydney, tomato growers there. So we'd pick up their tomatoes, take them into the fruit and veg markets, unload, then we, the company I that was driving for was just a small company, and uh, they had the contract to deliver to Coles at Gosford, Newcastle, and Taree, and around Sydney. So I, I managed to get onto the the truck that was doing the, the Gosford, Newcastle, Taree run, and I, so I did that for a while. So very long days back in the days when a lot of things that happened in the transport industry could never happen now. Well, they didn't have logbooks back in those no, days. Very long hours. You know, you'd, you'd start at four o'clock in the morning dropping off your, t your tomatoes from Warrywood, then you'd go into Darling Harbour Rail Yards, which is now the Darling Harbour Entertainment Centre, um, and uh, you'd unload peas and beans and stuff off the train, take them back into the veggie markets, then you'd get loaded up with your stuff and head off and do Gosford, Newcastle, Taree, and then drive home empty all in the one day. Well, traffic would be a lot easier back in those yeah, days. Yeah, it was, yes, yeah. But the uh, you talk about the changes in the uh, transport industry. Mm. What are some that you like and some that you don't like? I think there's not really that much that I don't like. Everything that, that I used to do back then has basically been um, sorted. The overloading, the long hours, that sort of thing. The sort of things that we were expected to do back in the early 70s, you'd never get away with now. You know, I got, I got caught a couple of times for overloading. And it was like, go to court, $300 fine. These days, the, the, you'd be looking at probably $10,000 fine and possibly wow. possibly even jail time. So that's great that they, they clamped down on that sort of thing. Lots of people died in the, tr in the transport industry in those days for, with long hours, falling asleep. Um, some of the things we, we were expected to do were just completely over the top so well down at Tarkata there's the uh, the tribute to the truckies that have passed yeah and that's yeah. Uh, quite a, an epic thing to go and check have you been to check it out I haven't at Tarkata no I've I've been to the Clybucker Memorial um, for the Clybucker bus crash just north of Kempsey that's that's still to this day Australia's worst road crash um, 35 people killed and 80 injured 22nd of December 1989 at uh, 2.40 in the morning must have really affected you. It did, because I was working for Greyhound at the time. So I was in the coach industry when that happened. Yeah, And that was uh, one of the coach drivers fell asleep and went head on with another coach. Um, yeah, really, really bad time, really bad time. How did that change you at the time? Obviously, you're involved in the uh, bus industry at mm -hmm. the time. How did that change what you were doing? made me more conscious of the fact that we're, we're all human and we have our limitations. We, can, you know, we can't do as much as we think we can. Um, you know, 
uh, and basically you've, you've got to weigh up the importance of doing what, doing what you're asked to do compared to what's safe for you to do, if I can word it that way. Is there too much pressure still on drivers to push the boundaries? I honestly, I, I really can't say officially, I don't know, because I'm not in that industry anymore. Um, I do believe it has been sorted out a lot. There were, so, there were some fly-by-night companies, that, uh, particularly the overnighters, who expected an awful lot of their, of, you know, of their drivers. They basically loaded up in Sydney and said, you have to be in Brisbane by this time. You know? And um, there were a lot of drivers, people who had their own trucks, worked subcontract, who ended up going broke or having to do trip after trip after trip with very little sleep just to try and make their payments on, for their trucks. It's, a, it's an interesting industry that a lot of people just can't wait to get into it. They just love the idea of driving a truck or owning a truck. What do you put that down to? I don't know. It's just something to do with us as human beings, I suppose, our attraction to motor vehicles. Romance of being on the road? Yeah. Because yeah, I all hate that. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, and I, I, there's no way I'd go back into it again, uh, into that sort of thing. Would not interest me in the slightest. Um, you bought your own truck. What sort of experience was that? Um, <laughs> it was an interesting experience financially. Um, basically, when I ended up selling it, I ended up selling it and still owing $6,000 for motor repairs that I had to then pay off afterwards. So I, I didn't, make, didn't make a fortune out of it by any stretch of the imagination. Tough way to make a living. Yeah, it was fun. Um, and some of the things, you know, you used to do a lot of your own mechanical work, which I believe you can't do now. Anything on a commercial vehicle has to be done by a licensed mechanic or electrician now. You can't just do your own stuff on the side of the road like we used to. Um, but it, it was it was enjoyable, but financially it, it was a pretty much a, a disaster. A tough way to make a living for Definitely. a lot of truckies. Definitely. Do you look Definitely. at the trucking industry these days and go, wow, they really have it, t-, especially the independent operators, they have it tough? Once again, I, I can't really say for now because I've been out of trucks for quite a long time now. But you must look at it and go, wow, you know, the yeah. price of fuel, the registrations the oh yeah the, re- the regulations yeah at, at one point i got it, i got into administration with a, um, a bus and coach company down in sydney and i eventually gave that away because i just couldn't stand the paperwork involved with department of transport new south wales and that sort of thing the stuff the hoops you had to jump through so i imagine it would be exact the same or very similar with trucks as it was with buses and coaches um, yeah, a lot of um, a lot of hoops to jump through, a lot of regulations to comply with, uh, and they got very the the transport people got very antsy with um, logbook entries and things like that. Like you'd hear of people saying, "Oh, you know, they, they gave me a fine for an incorrect logbook entry because I spelt a town name wrong." Really? Oh yeah, yeah, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's not an industry that I would be interested in anymore i can understand that now you moved into buses what Mm. pushed you into the people transport industry i don't know um it's funny dad always used to say we ended up doing the same thing we we were both we were both carting people around but he was doing it up in the air and i was doing it down on the ground so but i don't know it's just um one day i saw an ad for i thought oh yeah give that a shot and uh, went in just started off doing just normal service bus runs and and I thought, yeah, okay, get into the coaches. And because I had a bit of long distance experience, um, I meant they, you know, I worked my way up into the coaches and that, that continued on for a, a very long time. What was the highlight of, did, was it the people that you met? Just, just your general average Joe public. You know, nobody really stands out in particular. Um, a lot of overseas tourists. And that, you know, once I, once I got involved in the, the tour work and particularly with Greyhound doing the express work, you carried a lot of backpackers. So you got to talk to people from different parts of the world. And because I did a fair bit of overseas traveling in my young days, um, because with dad being with Qantas, you know, we, we did a lot of overseas stuff. So I, I got to talk to people and sometimes met people from the same area of England that we'd lived in when we were over there for a year and a half, things like that. Um, some of the accents were interesting. I still remember to this day one of the funniest things. I'm doing an express run up north for Greyhound, and I had this American fellow sitting behind me. He said, "Hey, driver, can you tell me when we're going to get to Baladala?" And I've gone, 
Sorry, what? He said, when... Bulladella. He said, <laughs> when do we get to Bladala? And it took me a while. I went, oh, hang on. Do you mean Bulladela? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was, that was, that was yeah, quite interesting. But um, I remember doing a, a run down the south coast of New South Wales with Greyhound down towards Sydney to Melbourne via the coast. And uh, somebody came up and said, there's a bit of a strange smell in the back, coming up from the back of the coach driver. So I've pulled up, jumped out of the seat and walked back. I'm like, yeah, there certainly is. Somebody's in the toilet smoking grass. <laughs> <laughs> so, tap, tap on the door, excuse me. That's <laughs> uh, one way to make the time pass, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. The early days with your dad flying around mm. as a pilot, well, getting, getting flown around, I should say, as yeah. a pilot, you must have seen a lot of countries. What are the highlights? The number one highlight for me is Egypt. Um, got to go to Egypt when I was, uh, I can't remember exactly what age, but I was fairly young. I've got photos at home of me standing on the, the feet of the Sphinx and standing on the, wow. yep, and standing on the, the bottom layer of the Great Pyramid, which you're not allowed to do these days, of course, but back then you could. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and... Uh, we got to go down into a tomb that had only just been opened. It was just a nobleman's tomb, but we actually it had only been opened weeks prior, and we actually got to go down and see it still with the sarcophagus inside with the mummy in it. So that, that's that's the, my number one overseas thing. Uh, we, we lived in England. Dad got transferred to England for two years, and I went over for the first 18 months. And uh, I've got pictures at home of me sitting on the stones at um, um, Stonehenge which of course these days is all fenced off. So I got to see, see and do a lot of places and things that people these days can't or can't get as close to. Uh, you know, but, but Egypt is my number one. The childhood memories, and yeah. do you think you were old enough to appreciate it at the time? Oh, well, the memories are still with me now. Um, I'd probably have deeper memories if I'd been older, but I still, I still do remember it. And of course, got the photos. Dad. Um, when after Dad passed, I got a, a lot of his sold slides, so I've digitised them and got them on. So um, they're not real great quality, but you know all the all the old photos. But we, you know, I, I got to fly to England in a super constellation, which was a three and a half days to fly from Australia to England with my mum, and uh, that's the the old four engine um, propeller with the three tails. Beautiful, beautiful queen of the sky magnificent plane um, and uh, yeah I've got to go to Hong Kong Egypt we toured we did a tour of Europe while we were living in England all of which I was between 10 and 14 thereabouts so still old enough to appreciate it oh absolutely mm. at that stage you can really sort of take in the experience yeah and and, yeah. and enjoy it and obviously mm. as i say it's it's something that uh, you can still remember today yeah it's just interesting that your dad said that you'll both end up cutting people around yeah yeah um what was your relationship like with your dad because he was obviously uh you were very close to him yeah no we had a great relationship um when i was you know when i was really young we used to be always going going fishing we'd have holidays up to foster tongue curry and hire the little um, putt putt boats that you used to have to start up with a leather strap around a, a solid flywheel, <laughs> puttering, puttering around, and um, and of course at the overseas trips as well. Um, going, you know, so, yeah, we did a lot of stuff together, particularly when we went to England, uh, going, touring around England and, and the continent and that that sort of thing. When you couldn't become a pilot, were you disappointed that you couldn't follow in his footsteps? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I suppose it. I wasn't devastated, put it that way. But, yeah, it was, was disappointing, obviously, yes. When you got into the buses and you mm. were driving around the country uh, being a bus driver, what are your favourite places? You've been to a lot of places as a truck driver, as a bus mm. driver. What are your favourite places in Australia? Probably not the places I've been as a bus or, or truck driver, more the places I've been as a, um, with a camper trailer. Uh, love Cape York, love the Gulf, particularly... Um, Diane, Diane, my wife and I are both really into the outback and um, Winton, that sort of out around that that sort of area. Been out there a couple of times, Uluru, Katajuda, um, the the ancient places of this continent. That they are really the places that sing to me. 
um, you know, with the co- with the coaches and uh, the bus work, you tend to go more to the tourist areas, which are not really. I'm, I'm more into the remote stuff. You talk about Uluru. We're mm. not allowed to walk on it these days. What's your thoughts on that? Good. Been there twice. Never had any inclination to climb it. Just sit at the bottom and enjoy it. Walk around it. Why do we have to climb things? You know, it's. I don't know what it is about human beings. We see something, we have to dominate it. Which basically, when you climb something, you're you're you're. People might not understand, but to me, that's that's trying to dominate something by by getting on top of it. Uh, you know, why can't we just stand back and enjoy these things? What's the majesty of Uluru like when you actually take in the whole experience? For me, it, it gives you a it gives you a real um, I don't know a connection, I suppose, with the land. Like I'm not indigenous, and um, I understand the indigenous have a much different connection to the land than, than somebody like me. But I was born in this country, so to my way of thinking, I'm not a uh, an Aboriginal Indigenous, but I'm Indigenous Australian because I was born here. It's exactly. Um, it's yeah. Some people might not like the, me saying that, but I, I agree totally. Yeah, yeah, they might not like me saying it either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, you know, Australia is my country. It's where I was born. So um, no different to anybody else who's born. Yes, my ancestors are different, but because my you know, my ancestry is English, English ancestry is from Europe. So does that mean that I, I, I'm an Indigenous European? No, just because my ancestors came from Europe across to England and then to Australia. I'm Australian. Did you miss Australia while you were overseas and doing all the travelling with your father and mother? Only really when we were living in England. On the actual trips, that, because they were you know, a few weeks at a time, uh, the 18 months that I spent living in England... Um, I, I, w- I, wasn't ha- I wasn't unhappy to come home again because back then in 1964 when we went over, I had to go to school. Yeah. And in 1964, there weren't many Australians in school in England. I was the only one in the whole school that I ended up going to. Wow. That's where I learned to fight. <laughs> I basically, I had, to, I had to stand up or be put down. Uh, why did they... Obviously, you were different with the accent, but why mm. did they single you out? Just because that's what kids do. My nickname was Convict uh, over there. That's what they called me. Oh, here comes the convict. Um, so th- they had a, a sense of superiority, I suppose. The fact that you know his uh, this this young fellow's come out, come over from uh, from the land where all the convicts live, and um, you know he's not as good as us, and that sort of thing. If that's the case, how did you enjoy your school time in England? Once I once I was able to assert myself. And I, I'm not saying that I, you know, I, I dominated anybody, but to show that I was willing to stand up for myself, it was actually quite enjoyable. Yeah, it was not not that much different to what it was here in Australia, really. Um, very very similar. Kid, kids the world over are the same once you once you break through the barriers and get to the real person behind the the act. Do you think they still have the superiority of being the uh, the leader of the British Empire? I don't know. It's been a long time since I've been over there, so I, I really couldn't say. But I think in the 70s, a, a, lot, a lot of Australians started going over to England, um, similar to the backpackers who from Europe who come to Australia. So I think they, they're a lot more accepted over there now. Uh, and Australia has, in, it, during my lifetime, Australia, in the world's eyes, has changed too. Um, you know, things like having the Olympics here and, and that sort of thing has brought Australia more forward in the, I would think, in the the, the um, understanding of the rest of the world. Uh, you know, there used to be days when you, if you had an American on the bus and driving through the middle of Sydney, they'd say, where's all the kangaroos? You know, <laughs> things like that. So a lot of that, has, that perception has changed. Um, we, we were considered pretty much a backward country with uh, Aboriginals with spears walking down Pitt Street, Sydney, and kangaroos hopping across in front of you, and all this sort of thing. I vividly remember those stories, and yes. you go, "Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah." It's, it's it'd be like if we expected to go over to America and have um, American Indians riding horses with bows and arrows down down through you know, through the middle of Washington or something. Or in know. Central Park. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. You 
you said an interesting thing that you, when you're going to some of these remote places as you like to get away, that it makes you can it, you sing. Mm. It sing it sings to me. It uh, and die dies exactly the same. We just love the outback, and nothing nicer than pulling over on the side of the of a track somewhere and just doing a three sixty degree turn and seeing nothing but horizon, just dead flat land, brown the great brown land as they call it. Uh, just dead flat from horizon to horizon, and everywhere you look, and then night you look up, and there's no, you know, there's no um, light to um, to deaden the the stars or anything like that. It's just, it's just like being in a, and make. Well, I suppose it makes you feel like an ant. You know <laughs> how insignificant we as human beings are in this in the planet and in this country, the planet, the universe. What gives you your connection to the land? I don't know. It's just, yeah, I really don't know. Um, it's not like I was born in the outback. I was born in, the, in Sydney, um, you know, lived in Sydney for, um, well, until 20 years ago, pretty much. Um, so it's not like it, um, there's anything I can really put my finger on. It's just, I don't know, it's just the way I am, I suppose. Moving from Sydney, mm. what brought you, what got you out of Sydney? If you were, if you were so, now you're so connected to the outside, what, mm. what got you out of Sydney in the first place? We, we had moved, when Di and I got married, we, um, we built a house at a place called Gosford, which is just a little bit north of Sydney, and we lived there for a, quite a few years. And I'd always planned to retire to Queensland. That had been, always been my intention. I was born on Queensland Day, 6th of June, so <laughs> I, was de- I, was destined, I was destined to be up here. And it, being involved with WIRES, Wildlife Rescue down there, I, I ended up becoming Vice President of WIRES New South Wales, and another friend, really good friend of ours from the Gosford area was the president. And she, she and her husband, Denise, Denise and her husband, Roland, they were quite well off financially. They owned their own sawmill and everything. So they decided that they were gonna hand the sawmill over to their kids and they were gonna go travel the world. They, they had all these plans made and everything. Denise got sick. Turned out she had leukemia. Within six months, she was wow. dead. Mm. She was the same age as me. So that was, a real kick in the pants. It was like, hang on a minute, am I going to wait till I retire to go to Queensland? No. So we sold our house, both quit our jobs, and headed north, and ended up in Gympie. Best decision I ever made. Been here twenty years now and love it. Before we moved to the Gympie uh, side of things, you were involved with with wildlife. Mm. Is that part of your connection to the land that you also connect with wildlife? It's funny because Di actually wrote me into that. She, she wanted to uh, get involved with the wildlife rescue and she said to me, you know, will you come along with me? I said, yeah, okay, I'll come along. And so I went along and yeah, we started doing the, rate, you know, the baby birds and that sort of thing. And then at one of the meetings one night, they said, oh, look, you know, we, we really need somebody who can go along and do a, a, a reptile course and, you know, snake handling course because we've got nobody in our area here. I went, oh, yeah, I can do that. I've always, you know, I've always liked snakes, never had, never had a problem with them. So I went along and did the course and absolutely loved it. And uh, so I became the, the local sna- snake wrangler, if you like to call it that, <laughs> removing snakes from people's houses and things like that. And um, I then became president, of the, ended up being president of the Wise State Reptile Committee and involved with the running of courses with a, a really great herpetologist named um, Jim Stepford. And uh, he was the one who taught me, and I ended up then working with him. And um, yeah, so that, that's what, what, what got me into it. What about snakes? Why do you like snakes? Because I know, uh, look, I, I can accept that they're there. Mm. I don't mind them. They've got their place. I used to be terribly phobic about them. Yeah. Now yeah. I'm not too bad. Yeah. You've had to deal with them. You live in the country. Yeah. What sort of snakes have you dealt with over the time? Ah. Uh, Pretty much all, everything that we, we have in this um, area of the country. Um, down in New South Wales, tiger snakes, um, brown snakes, red bellies. Up here, uh, taipans a couple of times. Uh, and of course, all the, the, the harmless snakes like the, the pythons and the tree snakes and that sort of thing. Um, pretty much a very wide range. Had any close calls? Not with anything venomous. I've been bitten a few times by non-venomous because you tend to get... Sometimes you get a bit um, blasé with the non with the pythons and things like that, and you go, "Oh yeah, this is a nice carpet python." You know, <laughs> just pick him up and put him in a bag, and next minute he goes, "What are you doing?" Bang! You know, I'm going to bite you. 
The venomous ones, though, what sort of uh, size are you dealing with when you... Uh, from, from really small ones to really, really big ones. I, the biggest I, I had was, um, I think it was a brown snake, and I, ta- I picked it up by the tail, pardon me, and lifted it up, and when I lifted it up, I got my arm to full extent, full height, and this snake was still touching the ground. Which, which presents a problem because you, <laughs> you, you need to have the whole snake off the ground because what you do when you've got them by the tail and you're holding them up, if, you, if they try to come up at you, you just twist them and that put, the, 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 the spine makes them go back to, to straight again. It's a bit hard to explain, but they can't, a venomous snake can't climb up itself like a python can. So they, they can turn and they can come up for about a third of their body height, but if you just give them a little bit of a twist, that twists them and then they they drop back down again. But once they're on the if they're on the ground, you can't do that. What did you do uh, in that situation? You have a, a, a fairly long stick that you hold out to hold the the head. So that's the secret to when you, you you hold the hand up. That's the secret to snake yeah as snake handling. Well, it's not a secret as it's, it's oh. not not all there is to it. It's, it's, it's one of the it's, it's one, one of the, the techniques. Yes, yeah. So if you've if you've got them off the ground, and uh, if they if they do try and turn come up at you or at your body, you give them a little twist. And uh, if you think about how the how the, the spine works, their spines are similar to ours. In that, in that, um, if you give a bit, little bit of a twist, they they can't turn the way they're trying to turn. It'll make them turn back the other way, which they'll then, you know, drop back down again. Do people still chase you these days to get the snake out of the attic or whatever? Not so much. I, I gave it away some years ago. You've got to think about as you get older, your reflexes slow down. And uh, you know, my back's not real fantastic these days from driving for so many years. I, I, don't, I don't bend as well as I used to. I'm not as fast as I was. Uh, so th- that's when it's time to say, no, I'm not going to play with these guys anymore. They're quicker than I am. Um, I can't run across a yard chasing a brown snake um, with a bag in one hand and trying to, gr- <laughs> trying to grab its tail with the other um, before it gets under the fence into the house next door or something like that. Where were you finding most of your snakes when you were chasing them? In, was it in a domestic environment? Yeah, pretty much. That's it. But that's pretty much the only place you would, um, if they're in the wild, leave them alone. It was when they were, you know, if they're in a, somebody's garden and they had children, things like that. Oftentimes, if they're in somebody's garden and there was nobody at threat and there was bush around, say so just leave them alone. They'll go. They'll go. They won't stay. There's a saying that snakes are as afraid of us as mm. we are, or except in your case, as most people are afraid of snakes. Yeah, yeah. or at least wary of them. Yes, snakes aren't interested in us. You think about it, there, there is, isn't a snake in this country that could swallow one of us. <laughs> Just as well. Yeah. So why, so why would they want to t- t- tangle with us? We're bigger than they are. Um, it's like a, a great... A lot of the time it, when a snake strikes at somebody, it's only trying to get you to go away. And often they'll, they'll do what's called a dry bite. They'll hit you with their mouth closed. They won't be trying to bite you. They're trying to scare you to get you to go oh, away wow, and, leave, and leave them alone. Not all snakes, but mm. you, often, you do oftentimes get that, um, particularly with red bellies. Red bellies very r- rarely bite. They, they tend to dry bite a lot. Um, so, yeah, the, the snakes don't want to know us. There's one of the saying that people used to say is, for every snake that you've seen, 20 snakes have seen you. Oh, wow. But as soon as they see you coming, they get out of the way. They're not interested in us. They don't, they don't want to be near us. There's been a few bites around here lately. How dangerous yeah. really are they? If, if you know your, your, um, your first aid, it's, it, you've got to be careful what I say here. Um, if you know your first aid, you can normally not have a major problem because our snakes in Australia don't have hypodermic fangs. So if you think hypodermic needles is where the, the fluid is pumped out from the inside the needle. Our snakes don't have hypodermic fangs. They have grooves on the back of their fangs. So their venom just runs down the fang. It's not injected in as such. So the fang punches the skin, the venom runs down the back of the fang and gets into the skin that way. And because of that, the venom only goes into the subcutaneous tissue just underneath the skin. It doesn't go, it doesn't go right down normally into the veins or arteries. So if you use a pressure bandage and and contain that subcutaneous tissue, you can have five or six hours bef- you know, before it becomes a major drama, as long as you don't move around, as long as you stay still. 
The only problem can be if by accident the snake's fang hits a venom, hits a vein or an artery. This happened to a um, one of a keeper at one of the zoos. I think it was down the Sunshine Coast some years ago. He got hit by a tiger snake, and it hit a vein. So that that venom did get into the bloodstream, and then then you've got a serious problem. Then you're in trouble. How was he? Did he survive? I don't think he did. No. Do many people die of snake bites these days? You don't hear of it terribly often. Because most people know about the using a pressure bandage. As long as you, you put pressure on that on the limb. Uh, splint the limb or, or you know, restrain it so the limb can't move and um, just get transported to the hospital. They, what they, they, they do at the hospital, they just open up the bandage so you never, never clean the, uh, if it's after a snake bite, never wash it off or anything like that. Leave, if there's any venom on the skin, leave it there because they can open up the, um, the bandage take a swab and they can always tell. They also have a, um, a polyvalent now which is a, uh, a um, antivenine that works on pretty much every type of snake. They'll only put the um, use antivenine on a patient if the patient is showing, showing signs that they need it because a lot of people have an allergic reaction because the antivenine is um, created in horses. And so people can actually be allergic to the the horse part of the antivenine. Oh wow! Uh, they, they, I don't know. I don't know too much about the science of it, but they must put a certain amount of venom into a horse or something, and, and the horse creates um, antibodies to that that venom, uh, and then that's how they they, they create the antivenine. Um, you know, I'm not a scientist or a doctor or anything like that, so um, you know, my information may not be totally accurate, but. <laughs> Pretty much that's that's what I was taught anyway. There's also the saying that baby snakes are more dangerous than the adults if they bite you because they'll let all of their venom in. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. People think that, oh, they're only small, they won't have as much venom. Their venom is just as potent. It, some In some cases it can be more potent because there's less of it, so the, uh, the toxicity can be higher. Um, and, the, yeah, they can certainly be just as dangerous as a big one. Um, and there's uh, another uh, snake myth is that okay, you see a baby, mum's not far away. Is that generally the case? No, often often they when they uh, are either born or hatched, they just bolt. <laughs> they get away from mum as quick as they can, so so mum doesn't eat them. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to think about that. Yeah, sna- snakes are pretty much solitary creatures. Yeah, other than when they're breeding, they don't tend to to hang around in big groups or anything like that. They're opportunistic as well. Um, you often get brown snakes in people who have horses because they have barns with feed. The rats come in after the feed. The snakes come in after the after the rats. You'll often have red bellies where there's dams because red bellies like water. They eat frogs. Um, it's and it's. I always say to people if they've got red bellies around a dam or something, I say leave them there. Leave them there. They won't bother you. They'll keep the browns away. Is that a fact that yeah. they do keep the? I believe so. Yes. How does that work? Red bellies. I've actually seen red bellies at, at killing and eating browns. Oh. Mm. Okay. Well, yeah. that, that does uh, confirm the myth. Yeah. Because I have heard that. Particularly one. the babies. Yeah. The red bellies will go after. They do like baby snakes, and so they'll they'll they'll, go, they'll take the baby browns. The move to Gimpy. Mm. Why Gimpy? What you've obviously travelled around. What was the thing that brought you to town? An accident. It was purely by accident. We just once the, we just made the decision that we were going to go, and because of our interest in wildlife, we decided we wanted land. So I just started looking on the um, the net and uh, um, magazines, and I found an ad somebody had put up for a property, um, in happened to be in Gympie, and um, I had a look at it and thought, "Oh, sounds all right." So I had a few few days off coming up, and so Di was working. I said, "Okay, so I'll drive up to Gympie." or up to Brisbane, her father lived at Ipswich at the time. I said, I'll drive up on the Thursday, Thursday, Friday. You um, fly up on the Friday night, I'll pick you up from the airport. We'll go up and have a look at this place on the weekend. And then I stuck her back on the plane on the Sunday night to, to get back for work and I drove back afterwards. And we came up and had a look at the place and fell in love with it, just happened to be in Gympie. It was an area that we were, that we were interested in because I've all, one of, Probably I should have said it before, but probably one of my favourite places in this country is Fraser Island. Absolutely love it. And so we wanted to be somewhere near the Fraser. 
Fraser Sunshine Coast, that sort of that sort of area, couldn't afford the Sunshine Coast, and we managed to find 40 acres here in Gympie and yeah, with a livable house. And that, so that was it. And the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You talk about Fraser Island. Mm. What's the attraction there? It's just the most beautiful place. It is stunning. Uh, we came up in our in the early days when after Di and I got married, we came up, and uh, before I'd even got, uh, I'd never had a four wheel drive, so we drove up to Harvey Bay, hired a four wheel drive. Di's mum came with us actually, and we went and camped on the on the island for a week and just absolutely loved it. Fell in love with the place. It's just um, you know the the rainforest and the sand and uh, the lakes and everything. It's a, it's a really special place. Um, hopefully, though, I, yeah, I was going to say, hopefully my ashes will get scattered there, but I think that's illegal, so I, I, probably, I probably won't say that. <laughs> um, You'd like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd be quite happy with that, either that or out in the, out in the, the bush somewhere. It was ideal. Um, it was close enough to Fraser for us to get over there on weekends and things like that. Rainbow Beach, which is beautiful. Only 45 minutes from the Sunshine Coast, a couple of hours from Brisbane. Not that I would want to go to Brisbane, but anyway. <laughs> Nothing against Brisbane in particular, just cities. I'm over cities. Staying on the Fraser idea, but mm. um, you started doing tours over there. Yes. And yeah. what did you have to learn about Fraser before you got over there and actually started teaching other people? Oh, a lot. A lot. Um, you're given a manual, which has all the history of the island, all the... Um, the fo- Fauna and flora, you've got to be able to identify the trees and the plants um, and, and you know, talk about the history of the island. Um, it's funny how that happened because Di had opened up a shop in the main street of Gympie, uh, or we'd taken over a shop, sorry, we didn't actually open it, we'd taken over a shop in the main street of Gympie. And I was in there one day and I'd, I was driving for the local bus company up here, just doing tour work for them. And uh, I was in the shop and just chatting to some customers and that. And, Somebody said, oh, so what have you been doing? I said, oh, I've been, you know, there's no tours at the moment. I was doing bloody school runs, driving me insane. I said, oh, what would you really like to do? I said, oh, I'd really love to go and drive the buses on Fraser, actually. So she re- reaches into a handbag and pulls out a business card for the operations manager for Kingfisher. <laughs> Says, here, ring him. So I rang, I rang him up and told him what I'd done, and bang, that was it. Um, I managed to get a job. But I went along as um, passenger behind one of the other drivers for a lot of tours, listening to listening to them, studying all the stuff in the books and that sort of thing. And then I, I started doing the tours with somebody else sitting behind me. Um, yeah, I ended up doing it for nearly six years. Some of the highlights of Fraser Island, what are the things that people really don't know that they should know? Or the, what, would it, what would encourage someone to go to Fraser Island? Well, the, the first thing that people go for mainly is the beauty of the place, is the lakes. You know, there's over 100 lakes on Fraser Island, freshwater lakes. Um, it, it's some absolutely stunning. You know, there's three different types of lakes. You've got um, the Barrage Lake, which is Lake Wobby, the Green Lake, which is created by a sand dune that blocked a creek and uh, created a lake behind it. You've then got your window lakes. Uh, a window lake is a lake that's uh, at the level of the water table, so effectively it's a window into the water table on the lake. So it has a, it, it will have a lot of um, um, turtle. They'll have turtles in them and um, lots of reeds and that sort of thing. Then you've got your um, uh, perch lakes, like Lake Mackenzie. The other lakes that are above the water table that are just perched in the top of the dunes and the crystal clear water, you know, white sand, really stunning. So the lakes are, are fabulous. Um, the wildlife go up on the top of Indian Head and you can look down and you can see, depending on the time of year and what's around, you'll see tiger sharks, turtles, whales. I've had whales come swimming really close to Indian Head when I've I've been standing on top of it. Um, And you've got the sea eagles and all the other um, birds that are over there. If you're really lucky, you see a a wallaby. You don't often see them, but uh, there, there are some out over there. In the early days when I was working over there, they still had the Brumbies, the, ho- the wild horses on there, and driving along the beach in a bus doing 60 or 70 kilometres an hour with a herd of horses thundering along next to you. It was, was pretty awesome. The Brumbies have all gone now, unfortunately. But um, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a beautiful place.
for dingoes that are over there, there's been a lot of mm. problems and a lot of controversy mm. with the dingoes on Fraser. What's your thoughts on it? I love the dingoes. They are a beautiful, beautiful animal. They are actually a wolf. They're not a dog, as most people think. And, and unfortunately, people just don't accept the fact that they are a wild animal. You know, would you go to Kruger National Park in South Africa and wander around among the lions or let your children wander around among the lions? <laughs> that's a, well, that's effectively what some people do on Fraser. Yeah. You know, I was driving over there one day up the beach and I saw some kids playing on the beach and I could see a dingo coming down onto the beach. So I pulled the bus up and jumped out and run over to these kids and said, where's your parents? And they went, oh, they're down the beach there fishing. And these little kids who were probably only about six, seven, eight, something like that, the parents are just letting them wander around on the beach with vehicles running up and down and dingo coming out down to check them out. Now, you can't blame the dingoes. Little children are a prey item to a dingo. They are, they are a small animal. And so you can't blame a dingo for you know, sizing up a small child. Got to ask you then, okay, the whole Lindy Chamberlain thing. What are mm. your thoughts on that? Did the dingo get the baby? What are your thoughts? I don't know either way. The dingo certainly could have, absolutely. Um, at the time when it happened, um, I wasn't real sure. But once they found the um, the wrap or shawl or whatever matinee it was. Matinee jacket. Yeah, matinee jacket, was it? Yeah. Then I thought, yeah, okay. I always figured that dingo could have done. But back at the time when that happened, that was before I knew much about dingoes. Um, that was before my Fraser Island time or anything like that. Um, so, yes, yeah, certainly, definitely could have happened. Absolutely. Um, you did six years on Fraser. It's mm. one of the most beautiful parts of our area. What's yeah. your favourite part on Fraser? Probably Sandy Cape, right up the very top. You can't get there on a bus tour or anything like that. You can only get up there if you've got your own vehicle. Um, you've got to really pick your tides as well because there's one part at Nagala Rocks that you can only... Um, get through the behind Nagala rocks you can't get around in front of them so you've got to use a bypass track but certain parts of the beach you're basically inaccessible on high tide so you've really got to pick your times and that's where some people come unstuck on Fraser they they just don't appreciate the uh, the dangers of the beach why not it's mother nature they should know that it is pretty dangerous yeah but you get somebody who's come from a city who's who hasn't done a lot of beach type stuff they wouldn't be thinking about tides. You know, high, how high is the tide? What time is the tide? Um, you know, I've got an app on my phone still from when I was doing that that I would uh, uh, look up and say, okay, yep, tomorrow high tide at 12 o'clock. It's going to be a big one. Uh, you know, aware of what you've got to do and where you can go and where you can't go. More so that when you're in your own vehicle, but in the bus you've got to go no matter what. Mm. Um, I remember going over on Boxing Day at one point in the bus and it was right on high tide and that time of year is when you get the biggest tides and at the time that I was getting off the barge onto the island was the peak of high tide it was a really big one king a king tide and the tide was so high the barge couldn't actually land on the beach on Fraser they had to go around the the bottom of the island to where there's an old sand mining ramp and drop me off there I then drove the bus up the, the mining road the old sand mining road and ready to come out on the beach and I've got stopped the bus at the top of the, the ramp the beach got out of the bus walked down to have a look walked back and said we've got a problem folks there's no beach we, we've got a choice we're either going to have to sit here for probably two hours or we'll call it off and we'll t I'll take you back and we'll give you a give you a refund or you can rebook so we ended up we turned around and we went back and we had to abandon that tour that day just purely because there was no beach to drive on um, I could, I could potentially have had it driven out there and sunk the bus and been in all sorts of trouble. So this is where what can happen, on, you know, if people aren't aware and don't think about the fact that it is, uh, it is a fairly wild environment. And when you're driving on a beach, there's not, not a lot of um, safety margins going on. Well, down on Rainbow Beach, a lot of four-wheel drives have become insurance claims. Yes, yes. <laughs> Particularly, yeah, Mudlow Rocks is famous for it. That's why one of Rainbow Beach's nicknames is the beach that eats cars. <laughs> Do people take too many unnecessary risks when they're driving? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely on the beach. Um, not, not trying to pick on young people, but particularly young people. 
because I did I did stupid things when I was young. I freely admit it. Um, and it, it, it can be, it's exciting when you first get out and start driving on sand. It's, uh, it's something different. You don't have lane lines, um, in gutters, traffic lights, et cetera, et cetera. But people just have to remember that when you are driving on a beach that you're allowed to drive on, it is a public road. It's got speed limits. It's subject to all normal road rules. You have to use your indicators, also, yeah, everything. Um, but yeah, people do get a bit carried away sometimes with it. These days you are involved in driver education. Mm. What got you into that in the first place? I was really happy doing the Fraser Island tours, but about eight years ago I had had, had to have a hip replacement. Basically just wore it out. Um, I played competition sport well up into my 60s and uh, a lot of walking in soft sand and that sort of thing and basically the right hip was just worn out. So. And Fraser Explorer Tours were really great. They said, you know, once you've had done, you can come back again. There, there's an, a fella was working over there at the time who'd had both his hips replaced and he went back to work over there. But I thought about it at the time and thought, nah, it's probably, I don't really want to wear it out again. I want to get as much life out of, out of it as I can. So I had a, a year where I pretty much just bummed around doing bits and pieces. I did a bit of work for the local bus, bus company. I did a bit of work for a local company driving their tippers stuff like that uh, and then one day there was an ad in the paper for a company here in Gympie called Roadcraft saying that they were looking for driver trainers and so I applied I believe there was a, a lot of applications as only two of us got interviews and we were the two that were put on and been there for the last seven years now. What are you basically teaching people in these Roadcraft courses? Safe driving we call it low risk driving teach and the main thing we have to try and get through to people, particularly young people, is that human beings are not designed to drive motor vehicles. You know, our bodies and our brains are not designed around moving at 100 kilometres an hour. Our brain and our body is designed to move around a maximum speed of 25 kilometres an hour. So if we're going to be in a big hunk of metal doing 100 kilometres an hour, we have to change our whole concept of what our brain wants us to do. Um, that's what we try to, particularly the young people, so we try to try and get through to them. Do you? In a lot of cases, yes, yes. Um, can't can't be guaranteed, but we do get um, feedback back from people who've done courses previously with us, and you know, like it might have, somebody might have done a course twelve months ago, and then we'll get an email come in and say, your your course saved my life. When such and such happened, what you told me clicked in. And I was able to take the correct action and avoid what, what could have been, you know, really bad. How does so, that make you feel? Oh, great. Fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good. Really good. Is COVID affecting it? It did for a little while. Um, we, we're back up and running now, though. Um, we have all safety precautions in place and complying with all the regulations and that sort of thing. Everybody gets zapped with a thermometer when they come in of a morning every day. Make sure nobody's got a temperature. If anybody does have a temperature, you're back out the door. Um, one of our instructors got a bit of got the flu a few weeks ago, and he was immediately he rang up and said, "Oh, look, you know, I'm a bit snuffly this morning. I think I've got the flu. Okay, straight down, get a COVID test." And once it came back negative, then yep, okay, you can come back to work. But until you get that test, you're not coming in. You've been out and about all over the country. What do you mm. still want to do? Where do you want to go? The only place I haven't been in this country is Western Australia or Tasmania. So I'd still like to get there at some point. Um, pretty much just keep, keep on doing what I'm doing. You know, we've, we've got a camper trailer and a, and a, a little caravan and get away doing some, you know, doing our little trips and that sort of thing. Yeah, I've so been to a lot of places with the camper trailer, been up the, the Cape twice, the Gulf, through the centre, Strzelecki track, gone down through Victoria, Great Ocean Road, and up through the Flinders Ranges, all over New South Wales. Um, and you know, Darwin, Kakadu, Litchfield, um, and all the centre area, Uluru, Karajuta, that sort of thing. So, yeah, just keep on doing it, basically. Woody, Bruce Woodstock, I appreciate your time and thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical. Mary Mark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick? 
ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions. When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Merrimark Medical. Contact Merrimark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cup to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose spinning foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. Now, they'll help you get down and dirty and save your feet with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it in for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. That's at Gimpy Foam and Rubber. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big, and their Positrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-ton, 8-ton, and a 2.5-ton. Plus, they provide side truck hire and even have a roller and a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 228806 and the earth will move for you.